This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. And I'm in chapter 10, verse 19. Verse 19. So follow along if you would. Um, if you need a copy of God's Word, there are Bibles there in the pews before you. Hebrews is a little toward the end of the book. You can uh, look at that. Anybody have the page number? 1007? 1007. That's in the official First Baptist Church Pew Bible. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works and not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I'll say this is the word of God. This is the word of God. Please respond. Thanks be to God. Our Bible teachers here at First Baptist have uh, been taught for many years, many decades about a methodology of teaching Sunday school classes. So if you came from your adult Bible study class this morning or your youth class or children's class, there is a, we didn't come up with this, it is just a teaching process that we use. Uh, some of you are educators by trade, you teach in the public schools or private schools and you understand the teaching process. When you get into religious education in the church, when you only have people for like an hour a week, there is a bit of a difference, so it's not exactly just trans-baptizing curriculum to make it Christian, but there is a process. And for years we have taught about these steps of motivation, examination, and application. It sounds very pastoral because they rhyme. And so when you get into class, whether our students, for instance, we can look at our students, what's happening in student ministry when they come in after we're eating ping pong and eating donuts, we gather them all together in a big group. And we'll do an opening study or an opening moment or a video or a teaching. And it's just that it's not the full lesson. It's not even the lesson. It's just an introduction to the concept of the day. And then all those students are then divided into their small groups and their teachers open the word of God and they'll use that which we just did an intro for as the motivation to get you thinking about the concept. And then they will go into the uh, examination which is examining the word of God, and then before they leave, and it's no different with adults or children, you're walking out with, well, why do I need to know that and how do I apply this to my life? That's your application. So if you're missing any of those three elements, then you might just be hearing a, a historic lecture and you need to have some, some insight into how to apply. That it, it, it is exactly what, what we have been teaching for many, many years. And some have heard us talk about the application bridge, which is an image that maybe helps some understand how to rightly imply the inerrant and immutable word of God. The bridge asks these questions. So if you're a teacher of a group, whether it's a, a Bible study class or a Sunday school class or a, or a D group or if you're just sitting at a table in a coffee shop trying to teach some friends about the scriptures or uh, <laughs> if you're like a, a last Friday or two Fridays ago, I volunteer as a character coach for one of our high school football teams and I'm sitting there on the bench because I don't have any insight into the football. I mean, I'm a football fan. They're not listening to me. So I'm talking to the water girls. So we're over here having this deep conversation and we were about the scripture, about the Bible, about Christianity, about just life. And so even in those conversations, 
these elements kind of prop up. You ask this question, this Bible verse that I'm reading today, this verse in Hebrews, what did this verse mean in the context and the time of it when it was written? What did it mean in the first century to the Hebrew believers to which it is addressed? Because there are cultural things that you cannot ignore. It is maybe a challenge to figure out what they are, but you can't ignore that because no scripture is written in a vacuum. Then the second question is, on that bridge, you say, well, what did it mean then? Then you say, well, what is the underlying principle that is remaining true throughout the t- uh, history? It was true for when it was written. It is true for every culture, every people group, every language, every race, every human being on the planet from then and from, from to all throughout history. That remains the same. So you ask this question, what is that underlying principle that is that bridge to the other stanchion, which is over here where we live today, and that is, well, what does, how does God's inerrant, immutable word written into a culture 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, whenever that old or New Testament passage was written, that meant something specific to a culture and a context, that principle that is unchanging for the word of God is unchanging, and since I am so thankful we don't have to make the word of God relevant, we just say, God, how, how do we understand your relevance? And then we look in our own lives and our world today and the take home and say, how does this impact me today? So those are three elements, then, principle, and now. But of the three elements, more often than not, in many evangelical churches today, the application is elevated. The take home is accidentally promoted as more important. You may disagree with that, so it has to be, the application is the biggest thing. No, it's not. It's important. And the reason people say the application is most important is because we're so afraid that the teaching of the Word of God will be presented or will be received as boring. And we're trying to keep everybody's attention in the Twitter world, or I guess it's the X world now, right? The Word of God is, here's some insight in case you need this. The Word of God is not boring, nor has it ever been. Teachers of the Word of God are. There are many boring people on the planet. And it is a gift to make the inerrant, immutable, most exciting thing ever given to us, meaning the Word of God. If you can turn that into boring, you have a gift. But it has nothing to do with the Word of God. It has everything to do with you. And maybe it's a lack of preparation, or maybe it's just a lack of study, or maybe it's a lack of understanding the excitement level there. But even the greatest, some of the, we were talking about this this morning, Mike, even like Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest, he, he was a boring preacher. He could barely see. He read his sermons off of his notes like this, looking down almost the entire time because he could barely see what he was saying. His, and yet, even now, we think of the Great Awakening and the great messages and the sermons that God used which we'll talk a little bit about that in future sermons, but the personality, we are so personality driven. We will be drawn to somebody with a lot of charisma and no character. And I would say, let's lean heavily into the word of God and let's make sure we understand that that one character matters and the teacher matters, but the word matters more. Because when we're reading the word of God and the learners who may get bored may ask these questions, why do I care? Why do I need to know this? And ultimately, The follow-up question is, well, how can I use this today? And those are not bad questions. Application is vital for Scripture, is always applicable. But application, apart from examination, leads to poorly understanding the text at best and also leads to heresy at worst. Where do you think the prosperity gospel came from? An empty understanding of the Word of God salted with all my own personal opinions of what I think it should mean. 
Not me personally, but those that teach the false doctrine. So why state this up front? Because here in this book, we have, which we have spent months in, the writer who is clearly pastoral and studied in the, in the Old Testament covenant and the new covenant that has been revealed shifts from the detailed insight regarding examination of the old to application for the believers today. So, so think of it this way. We're 10 chapters in and we have done all of the motivation and examination. We're still doing such, but now we're leaning into finally a little bit of application, but it wasn't the first thing stated in the book of Hebrews. You have to have all the other first. R. Kent Hughes states in his commentary on the book of Hebrews this way, that the writer shifts from doctrine to duty, from creed to conduct, from precept to practice, from instruction to exhortation. In other words, here's the push for how believers should live according to the teaching. In other words, 10 chapters in, he's like, you got the teaching, you got the teaching, here's the teaching. You know the teaching, you understand the teaching, you understand it, you amen it, now this is how you have to change. See, when Christianity is simply behavior modification without the word of God cemented underneath as foundational, then then Christianity as sold as behavior modification is just changing the way you behave so that someone else approves of you. Behavior modification cannot be what we lead into. Our behaviors change not because we're trying to do things that God wants us to do. Our behaviors change because we are living according to the word of God, which is whittling away all the things that are not honoring to him within our own lives. But if you jump to application and how, what do I, why do I need this today? If you jump to that without reading the word of God, without studying the word of God and understanding it in context and what it really means, then you run the risk of heresy at worst and just empty, fruitless teaching at best. A short passage, three things we're going to look at today before we partake today as the church of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Three things that the pastor wants the church to know. One, we are to be confident. One, we are clean Three C's, confident, clean, and we must be committed. Confident. Let's look back at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, and there's a comma and it continues on, we have this confidence. And since we have all this, here it is. The writer is saying, I'm done coaching. You know, NFL starts today for real, for at least for the only team that really matters. So that starts today. And all that other stuff was practice and workouts and pregame and, and practice games and scrimmages. But today is the game. And there comes a point in like a football game, it's like, hey, the, the, the clock has started and uh, the whistle has blown and uh, game on. It's too late to kind of adjust at this point. We can make mid-game adjustments, but we're ready. There's no more coaching. In this case, the Hebrew writer is saying, there's no more coaching, no more teaching. The chapters of explanation of the old covenant have been given to you from throughout your lives, talking to the Hebrew believers. You have, he has addressed them in these first 10 chapters. The breakdown of the law is prepared for the new covenant has been given clearly. There is a role for the high priest. You now understand this. The person of Melchizedek is the priest that Christ is a, is, is for, was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the King Jesus, who is also the priest. And all of that means, which we have already talked about, that has been detailed. The whole concept of the holy of holies, the tabernacle, the place of sacrifice, the altar, the blood, all of that has been re-explained and explained again and taught again and detailed out for the, le- for the learners who are receiving this letter. Now it's game time. No more practice. This is it. In the original 
Top Gun movie that came out in 1984. There's a scene in the film where the fighter pilots are on their carrier and they're meeting with their commanding officer, they're happening there and the descriptors of the enemy planes are giving all that detail and the music is in the background, it's there, you know, that, that music really makes it happen. So it's kind of there. And you've got Maverick and you've got Iceman and the Iceman and the other characters, the other pilots in the room, and they're getting the briefing from their CEO. And then he says this, that briefing, he says, gentlemen, this is the real thing. This is what you've been trained for. And then the music gets louder. And your heart, right now, some of you have goosebumps. You're imagining it right now. And I, I'm just telling you, I mean, some of you, uh, I know the front rows, they don't get this. Maverick's just not quite the same. It's almost there. But, but, but in 1984, when that music got louder and that moment happened, I mean, the Navy had recruiters in the theaters as soon as that movie was over. You know they did. I've talked to guys my age that, that they're like, yeah, and, and that's, that's why I joined. I was going to be Tom Cruise, right? So it happened because you're, it's like the, the, you have worked for this. You have trained for this. It was awesome. This is what you have trained for. The writer of Hebrews is saying to the early church, you know this is true. You have studied the word of God. You have studied the law. You have studied the prophets. You can see how the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You know who he is. You know what the church is. You get this. Therefore, since we have confidence. That's what he says at the first verse there. Confidence. That first verse we read there. Since we have this confidence. Verse 19. We can know. We don't have to wonder. We can know, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, through his sacrifice on the cross, he paid the bill for the sin of humanity that you and I owe, for the wages of sin is death, and his death paid that. And because of Christ's sacrifice, that curtain was torn in two, the wall is gone, access to the holy of holies is there, and no longer is even symbolically God reserved to a place of geography on the planet. We are confident that Christ is the, is the priest. He is not just the priest, not just a priest, he is our priest. So in a sense, the writer is saying to the first century church, 10 chapters in, this is what you've been training for. Now is the time. Sometimes we just need reminding of who we are and whose we are. And then sometimes we just need to be reminded of why we're here. He'll say, well, I just don't know, but I just don't know. Know what, about your salvation? Why don't you know? Christian, why can't you know? Why don't you know? You can know. The Bible says that it is made there for us an assurance. The winds of doubt should not be able to sway your confidence in Christ. If your confidence is in yourself, well, surely the winds will blow you off your pedestal. If your confidence is in yourself or in another person, absolutely, that's going to mess you up. You're going to fall apart. But our confidence as Christians is in the only one whose blood could pay the bill for our sin. This is what the writer is saying to people that lived 2,000 years ago and are now dead. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying to people in this room today. You can know. You can have this confidence. So let's look at what it means to be clean. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is, this is not just a thought to consider. This is not just a verse to contemplate and go, hmm, let's just... Let's think about that language. Let's think about this. This is not just a consideration. This is actually a command. Look at that. Let us draw near. Not let us vote on whether we should. 
Not let us consider if it's a good idea. Let us, church, draw near with a true heart in full assurance based on the confidence we have in Christ, assurance of our faith. Since we are confident in Christ, since we can know, let us draw near, let's get closer, let's get in the game, let's quit hiding in the shadows, let's get off the bench. Why? Because we've been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. And we can draw near without fear. To think that we could draw near to God on our own merit, then fearfulness should overwhelm us and that would be the right response. But to enter in with the Son, our priest, we have no fear. Just as the blood sprinkled Israel under the old covenant, so the blood of Christ, the blood of sacrifices put Israel under the old covenant, the blood of Jesus Christ sprinkles clean believers under this new covenant, this new testament. The evil that defiled a conscience is washed away. What about this washing with pure water? Some say, well, that's baptism. Yes, but more. In the Old Testament, there were ritual washings that were required. Even now, if you go to Israel and go visit the Western Wall, the, the one outdoor synagogue there that is a place where many tourists will visit, we've been there numerous times, you'll notice that there are water fountains with metal cups attached to chains sitting on those water fountains near the Western Wall. Those cups are there not to drink water out, not to get a sip, but for the washing of your hands. Now, if you're not an Orthodox Jew, you just walk on by, get a hat on your head, and walk up and pray. But if you're Orthodox, you will spend time there at the wash basin first, and you can watch people do this. And they will take the water out of the faucet, and they will pour it over their hands, and they will ritually wash their hands. The water that comes out of those water fountains sitting there in that old square is the same water from the cisterns and pumps that come into the restrooms just behind it and that goes into the restaurants on the other side of the city. It is, it's clean, it's drinkable water, it's pure? Well, not really, not really. Yet just like in the Old Testament, the washings today continue among the Orthodox because it is ritual, it is symbolic. It is an outward showing of what is supposed to be an inward repentance. That is what it is meant to be. Physical washings of the old, in the Old Testament did not truly cleanse people before God. Hebrews 9, which we already preached through, clarifies that. Yet the redeemed and obedient Christians are cleansed with pure water and that changes everything. Now some try to pigeonhole this phrase here into a baptismal requirement. In other words, if you're not dunked under the water, you don't go to heaven. Like a requirement for salvation. Uh, that's a baptismal regenerative statement which is a doctrine our church does not hold to. You say, but you're a Baptist church. Absolutely, because we believe baptism is important and vital, but it is not salvific. For if it was, then any work you could do could be enough to get you into heaven eventually. See, this is a statement of change, this wording here. A statement regarding the cleansing of the soul, the redemption and holiness made true in our bodies through the cleansing of water. But what water? Not the water in that tub there, though it's important, and we will baptize. And as a step of obedience, for that is to not be baptized is to live disobediently if you're a Christian, just so you know. Living in sin, if you want to call it what it is. But that water, did you know that water in that baptistry isn't really pure? I wouldn't drink it. Mainly because 
we've walked a lot of people through it. And it's in Orange Park, so it smells like sulfur. So we know what our water's like. It's just water. It's not holy water. But we are to be cleansed with pure water who is the living water, for that is Christ. Our baptisms, by obedience and understanding, declare this publicly to all, but even the water we baptize in is simply just water. It does not save us. In our baptism, we are graphically buried with Christ and beautifully raised with him in new life. You've heard us state that over and over again. It is symbolic of that life change. It is a picture of what Christ has done. The cleansing that allows for access to the Father through the Son is not done through our works, but by the work Christ has done and through his sacrifice, and we can be thankful to God for that. But let's look at this last letter C, which I I put committed there. Let's look at verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Commitment can be a strong word, or it can be a weak word. (laughs) That means absolutely nothing, if not acted upon. See, to make a commitment to someone and not keep it is very weak, and yet in our world, it is often excused. Anybody, anybody ever been invited to some kind of event on Facebook and you click the button that you're going, but then you don't go? I never click that. I always put maybe, because it sounds nicer than I don't wanna to go to your thing. But we'll tell people the thing they wanna hear, we'll make promises we intend to not keep. You know anybody that's ever made a promise and intended not to keep it? You know anybody that's made a promise or a vow and decided it wasn't binding? You know anybody that ever stood on a stage and said, I do, I do, and then they said, I don't anymore? See, commitments and promises sometimes fall by the wayside because we let them be driven by our wants and our needs, or really our wants. I'm not talking about excused options. I'm talking about just frivolousness. Broken promises are all around us. But as the writer under the Holy Spirit's inspiration tells the Hebrew Christians, and as God reminds us today, as his children, as his local church, we have a command to hold fast and remain committed to that which he has called us. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That's what it says. Hold fast, verse 23, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. That is not a man, I hope you can do it on your own. That's a, that's a command that Christians are to do, but also recognizing how weak we are, we are then commanded to stir up one another. You ever know anybody that stirs up other people? That's not what he's talking about. We are to stir one another up, because we all know people that have no problem stirring up people or stuff. But what we are to stir up may What we are to do as Christians is to stir up what the Spirit is leading us to stir. Stir up for good works. Man, this is so convicting to me because I'll just preach to myself at this point and then the rest of you get to listen in. So Christian, if you are the type of person who is avoided by other people because you're so negative, because you're always angry, because you're never satisfied, because you wear a critical spirit like it's the latest fashion, if you're the kind of person that is always frustrated at other people and you f- the frown on your face is so prevalent that the lines that have developed are very hard to turn right side up. If you're 
a grunter or a barker. I, I know people that actually like bark at other people. I'm like, ah. If that's you, then here's the revelation. Other people are likely not your problem. Others, that everybody on the planet that ticks you off, it probably isn't them. It's you. Are you stirring up others for good works or are you tearing others down? Are you, is it, it, is, it is so much more easy to pick what isn't working and how everybody else is messing up. It is not necessarily your calling to bring that to everyone's attention. Otherwise, you're living under this cloud and if you notice that people are doing their best to avoid hanging out with you, it is because they can't stand it anymore. I've been there on both sides. Human nature reigns at times. Gossip is more fun than edifying talk. Criticism is easier than encouragement. This is the depravity of man and no one has to be taught this and no one in this room is immune to that. But Christians, we have a command and a commission and as the writer tells us here, we have been trained to get this right. This is the real deal. We simply cannot ignore that which we've been commissioned and commanded to do. For if we can, well, we can, but if we ignore that which we have been commissioned and commanded to do, then there is no other alternative than we are living in sin. And this is going to really mess with folks who, who man, let me do <laughs> If you live under the I need my me time banner, which drives all of your leisure activities and everything you do to the point where you forsake the gathering on Sundays. If what I'm reading is true, forsaking the meeting together is sinful. Yeah, but I'm only gonna miss two weeks out of the month. Yeah, that's, that's half every month but I'm on the road a lot. I'm not talking about your job. I'm just talking about choosing to not gather. Now, let me tell you what this isn't. Because anytime you put a pastor behind a podium who then tells people that you ought to come to church every week, there is the cynicism that comes up that I would have come up in my mind. So I'm gonna make sure it's clear. This is not a plea to get people to continue to come so this organization can stay financially solvent. I don't, that doesn't drive me. This is not about propping up a business model. This is not trying to reclaim some 30-year-old glory we thought were the good old days either. This is about obedience to the call of being committed one to another. And this is the detriment of the super large mega church world where people can hide in crowds. I know there are some great, really super large churches teaching and preaching the word of God and I know many of the pastors that lead some of those and, and, I'm, and, and they're doing a wonderful work but there is a, a dark side to that, just like there's a dark side in a, in a normative side church, if you want to call us that, or even a smaller church. And the dark side, and it can be done in any size church, but you just see it so much. The one another's of the command of scripture disappear when the religious show replaces it and you can show up like it's a concert or an event and then leave without engaging with anyone. I mean, it just happens. It is our nature. You know, when I go to a Jaguars game, I don't really, I mean, in fact, I'm pretty excited if the people that have tickets next to me don't show up. Anybody ever get on an airplane and you're just praying, oh, I hope they don't make it, I hope they don't make it. 
who? That person in the seat right next to me. If they don't make it, then I can sit like this and just woo, you know. But then, oh, here they come. It's all, oh, they should have shut the door. It's the last person on the plane. And, you know, oh, thank you for waiting. Yeah, 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 sit down. You've run my flight, you know. That's not how church should be. Let the word speak and may we have ears to hear. Verse 23 in closing. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Father, may we be the church that does not forsake the gathering And may we be the body who encourages one another as we anticipate the day coming. As we partake of this communion, this Lord's Supper, this reminder today as believers, I thank you, Father, that we didn't forsake today's gathering. Be glorified and honored in this for the believers in the room and the church members who are being called to even to serve you well in different areas perhaps. Lord, just help them to be obedient to that. For the non-believers in the room, those who are guests with us this morning, show them where the church is that you have already set apart for them to be a part of in that family. If it be here, then praise be to God. Father, if it be to another church in our community, then praise to you as well. Your will be done. We know it will, but we ask that it will be in Jesus' name. Pastor Mike's going to come and guide us through the partaking of the Lord's Supper today. Mike. Well, it is a gift to be able to immediately apply. 